This is The Guardian. This was hyped up as Rishi Sunak's worst week as Prime Minister. But after he avoided defeat in the House of Commons, Cabinet Ministers are insisting that everything's fine. On the Conservative benches, there is a unified commitment to deal with this problem. The truth is that Sunak's just postponed his troubles until after Christmas, and some grimly familiar people are getting ready for yet more Tory trouble. We are not supporting the bill. The bulk of us abstain. Is this a horror film or a bad sitcom? And when's it going to end? I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Week the UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are the chief leader writer at The Observer and Observer columnist, Sonia Soda, and The Guardian's political correspondent, Kieran Stacey. Hello to you both. Hi there. Morning. Hello. You sound alarmingly perky. Another long political day yesterday, which ended with the vote uh, on the Rwanda bill in the House of Commons. There was the expectation or something in the air, you know, about the idea that some huge uh, breakpoint might might materialise, but it didn't. The bill passed its second reading in the House of Commons. Let's hear a bit of what happened. The eyes to the right, 313. The nose to the left, 269. Right, let's talk about the numbers. Kieran, um, the story was really all about Tory abstentions. Just tell us what that story is uh, and what it tells us. Yeah, so they were about, well, there were 29 Tory MPs <coughs> who abstained without being paired. That is basically who abstained without permission. Those are the rebels. That's the number that we're playing with here. The fact that they abstained rather than voting with Labour against the bill meant that the bill went through anyway. So it's past its second reading. But 29 is a very interesting number to have rebelled because if that exact number rebels by voting against instead of abstaining, that will actually kill the bill. Ah, okay. So in a way, the rebels have have done it perfectly. They've sent a message to number 10 that we have the numbers to kill this. If we want, you better give way on some of our amendments. But they've kept the whole thing still in play. Nothing resolved. Nothing resolved <laughs> yet. Yeah. yeah. What a surprise. Sonia, I suppose I came to this in a slightly overexcited way, expecting some high political drama and it didn't materialise. I wasn't really surprised that the bill got through with you. No, I wasn't actually. I mean, I did. I always thought it was going to pass, but that the rebels were going to create moments of high drama throughout the day. It would have been a very big deal for them to have voted against this uh, bill at second reading. I think the last time that a prime minister lost a second reading vote was in 1986. They're often seen these votes when a government's got a big majority as a formality, because, you know, none of the amendments have been discussed yet. So it's just a sort of nodding it through and then the real debate happens later. So it would have been a huge deal for them to block it at this stage. But they also knew that it was a point at which they could try and get some, you know, concessions from Rishi Sunak, perhaps not on the face of the bill itself, but him saying to them behind the scenes, well, I might be able to do this. I might be able to do this so long as you vote for it. So I always expected it was going to be a day of drama. But then when when it came to the crunch, the PM was going to get it through. I mean, the truth is there is a huge story going on here, but we can't see much of it because, as you say, it's all about sort of backroom negotiations. Kieran, you were in and around Parliament last night, I'm sure. What was the feeling 
I mean, you seasoned hacks must have known that that actually outwardly not much was going to happen. Never quite know, do you? I mean, we thought that there would be between 20 and 30 rebels, and that's exactly what happened. We thought there might be a mix of abstentions and votes against, but in the end, they all abstained. But you just, and even the whips don't know, you know, they'll have done their counts, they'll have called round everybody, but you don't know until somebody actually walks out onto the floor of the chamber and then through the division lobby, which way they're going to go. And, you know, had one of their meetings with Rishi Sunak or with the whips gone a different way, who knows, they could have actually taken a stronger position. So it did feel quite dramatic yesterday. It felt, you know, to a lot of people like those Brexit years when everybody was fighting over the Theresa May um, post-Brexit arrangements. Even with a large majority, they've shown Rishi Sunak that he doesn't have full control over his party. So that's, I think that that is going to run and run. That That is almost the defining thing of Rishi Sunak's premiership is how little control he has over the Tory party. We'll talk about this in a minute. But the, the point is the kind of people on the right of the party who who have made trouble for Rishi Sunak, th- their strategy is always to keep it simmering along, right? The thing they actually don't want is a great dramatic showdown. They're, they're people who like to string things out and have, pr- well, have prime ministers at their that. mercy. You say that, but then they've had, they did have great dramatic showdowns during those Brexit years that I was talking about. And yes, they want to maximize their power and their leverage, but you know, they have essentially, I mean, they essentially brought down Theresa May. So they're possible, you know, they, they have the potential to bring down prime ministers if they wish. And the Tory party now has a kind of almost bloodlust about it. Um, they've got so used to uh, deposing prime ministers and leaders of the party but i think that they they've just you know they see it as just one of the actions they can take now in their grand uh plan to get what they want it would have been very unusual i think for a group of right-wingers to vote against this bill given it's supposed to be all about getting the rwanda plan off the ground and and that's ultimately what they want the passions within the party right now over uh, having built up over the last few years are so high that people are starting to do what you might consider <laughs> from a distance as irrational things. Yeah. And that just makes it much more uh, uncertain, um, much more unpredictable than uh, it might otherwise be. Conservative Party seems very much locked in to this very sort of high-pitched, almost hysterical mood. It can't get out of it. You know, mood-wise, it's much where it has been since 2016, really. One of the big differences, so there were lots of similarities with the Brexit votes um, that we were seeing in kind of 2016, 2017, 2018, but it's hard to remember which year it was now. Um, <laughs> but um, the big difference is obviously what how Labour's doing in the polls. And even uh, Sinak's most ferocious critics have got an eye on that. And I think the thing that's really holding them back in comparison to some of that trouble that they were uh, causing in the divisions uh, back around the time of Brexit is the knowledge that actually if they go too far and create too much of a crisis, they could lose control of it and it could end up in a general election. Um, And that would be very tricky for lots of Conservative MPs with the polls as they are at the moment. I think that's true. But I think a lot of them also think that things, uh, there's no sign of things getting better. So, you know, another year of this is not actually going to necessarily make things better. It reminds me a bit of being around Parliament in that 2009 early 2010 era when Labour was at the end of a long term in government and the party was tearing itself apart and had kind of run out of energy, run out of ideas and everything that Gordon Brown tried just failed. And there were a lot of people around that time, I think, who just thought, I can't really see how this improves for us. Everything they try, nothing seems to narrow the polls. If, If the polls do start to narrow, I think the mood changes very quickly. The point, as you've already said, is that this is going to run and run. This is reflected in what the newspaper's have said this morning, 
The Times. Sunak's arrives around a revolt, but it's not over yet. Daily Mirror, the nightmare after Christmas. Daily Express, victory for PM. Mutiny over Rwanda plan fades away for now. Daily Mail, Sunak sees off the Tory Rwanda rebels for now. And The Guardian, Sunak avoids major rebellion over Rwanda deportation bill for now. That leads us to the obvious question, which is what happens next. I mean, it strikes me that this says a lot about how accident-prone Rishi Sunak has turned out to be. He obviously thought that picking a huge fight about the Rwanda bill would define him against the Liberal establishment and the Labour Party. But what it's actually done is brought out the most stubborn, impossible and very familiar element of the Tory right. They're back in the foreground. And it's also caused problems on the other side of the Conservative Party. And to me, anyway, the whole thing looks impossible. Kieran, is there any chance of him squaring this circle? one way or another. I think the only way that he squares this circle is by facing down one wing or the other of his party. And frankly, he's probably got to face down the right wingers. That's what he did last night. He just put the bill out there and they passed it as it was. Now he's got to do the same again. If he keeps giving way, it's just going to slide away from him. And he now has you know, a, a much stronger, more vociferous centrist part of the party in the One Nation caucus who say that they're actually willing to vote against the bill if there are major concessions made. So, you know, I think that eventually he's just got to take a stance and say, you know what, if you're willing to bring me down over this, go for it. Do you think he'll do that, though? That would be out of character in the sense that what he's tended to do since he became prime minister is just capitulate repeatedly to those people on the Tory right. Yeah, but I just don't see how he's got any option now. I mean, if he wants to pass this bill, he's going to have to make some decisions. Yeah, yeah. Every decision he makes is going to anger someone within his party. He's just got to decide who he least wants to piss off. I mean, Sonia, it's some token of how surreal this is, that if the Conservative right get their way, then the Rwanda government leaves the deal, right? So the very thing itself ceases to exist. Yeah, I mean, that was what's so extraordinary about it. You've got um, you know, the Rwandan government, which the Supreme Court has said is an unsafe country, partly because even if they're well-intentioned, they can't be trusted to keep their word on international treaties because they've broken them before. They're the ones who are ending up kind of being some sort of softening influence on this bill, uh, as well as the left of Rishi Sunak's party. So I think that's quite an extraordinary reminder of just what a crazy situation uh, the Conservative Party's got itself in. I entirely agree with what you were saying earlier, John, which is this, this does have the air of a completely self-confected crisis about yeah, it. Yeah. And when you look Could at it... your enthusiasm, we said last week on the podcast, it feels like Yeah, that. you can kind of see what Sunak's kind of political strategy was, but how we ever thought this was going to work when the Labour Party is actually marginally ahead of the Conservatives in who you trust more to handle immigration. I mean, it's just crazy, really. Can I just add one note of scepticism there, which is I know that the government has said that Rwanda says it's going to pull out of this if it go, if they go any further. But I, I, I'm afraid I have to agree with members of the European Research Group and other Tory right-wingers. Steady on, on steady I on. I don't believe a word of it. There is no way that the Rwandan government is really going to pull out of a deal that gives them this much money for so little because, you know, we're in contravention of the European Convention on Human Rights. That was clearly a confected line drummed up by number 10. They managed to get the Rwandan government to say it. And I'm not surprised that Rishi Sunak's own backbenchers aren't buying a word of it. Confections here, confections there. Let's just talk a bit about the Conservative right in its current form. We're back, really, to this psychodrama centred on hardline Eurosceptics, most of whom always look to be like the sort of people whose politics are rooted in the fact they were bullied at school. But um, <laughs> they want us to believe that they're like the mafia. Apparently, this term which is used for them now, the five families, that's that's their own description. I mean, it's a bit, ooh, we're scared. But that's what they're calling themselves. And a uh, pub quiz question, can you name the five families, either of you? 
No, maybe Kieran can, but I think we should. God, I think we should that. just refuse to use their language around this stuff. Quite well. Frankly. Let's take the piss out of them slightly, but like, we can only take the piss with, on the basis of a bit of hard fact. So, Kieran, can you name the five? All right, let's have a go. European <laughs> Research Group. Yeah, correct. New Conservatives. Yeah. Common Sense. Yeah. Oh, uh, can I can I ask a friend? Uh, you can ask me. The two you're missing are the Northern Research Group, apparently. Oh, the Northern con- Research Group. And, the growth group, Liz Truss's growth group, group of course. Which is the Trussite. Red Wallers. Um, I see, I knew that. That was still quite impressive, though. Oh, uh, yeah, but three <laughs> out of five is a very, very good score. I only managed two on, on, on my first go. Um, running across those five groupings, um, at least three of which I've, I only heard of this morning, can you just remind me what, what their main concerns are about the bill, Kieran? Yeah, so uh, they have two. The first one is the one that they flagged up well in advance, which is that what they really wanted was a so-called notwithstanding clause, which basically means they wanted a clause that would get them out of having to comply with orders from the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, the other thing they want is there is a clause in there, 41B, that individuals could uh, bring an appeal based on... Uh, their own personal extreme circumstances. Basically, this is not to say that the whole scheme is illegal, but if you have a particular reason why you can't be deported to Rwanda, you can approach the court and and make that case. The government says this would only be used in very small number of cases if somebody's, say, heavily pregnant, if they have particular health concerns, that means they literally can't get on a plane. But the members of the Tory backbench groups, the right-wing backbench groups, think that this is basically a kind of green flag for any lawyer, any human rights lawyer, to find a way in which their client actually has some exceptional circumstances. So they want those two clauses changed. Now, what we understand overnight, the government is thinking about is tightening up clause 41B. So maybe being a bit more specific about the circumstances under which people can actually lodge those kinds of individual appeals. Um, But again, as I said before, at some point, Sunak does actually have to call the bluff of the people who are just demanding more and more and more. It's worth saying at this point that there is something absurd about as nasty as, as, as the outward appearance of this bill is that the arcane nature of a lot of this conversation, in the sense that we're all living through a cost of living crisis and public transport doesn't work and the NHS is at breaking point and everything else. And, and here the Conservative Party is losing itself in the midst of this stuff. Briefly, Sonia, the One Nation Conservatives are the other players in all this. I mean, outwardly, not very one nation at all in the fact they voted for one of the nastiest bits of legislation ever put before the House of Commons last night. So they're not that left wing or liberal or nice, are they? Yeah, they sort of, I mean, some of them have been raising concerns about it, but, you know, the vast majority of them all got in line and voted for the bill, essentially. The, um, you know, most of the rebels were from the right of the Conservative Party. And their concerns stem all around the fact that, you know, this bill, uh, many expert lawyers think, would still put Britain in breach of its international obligations because it allows, uh, it says to ministers that they can ignore uh, directions from the Strasbourg Court, the European Court of Human Rights, for example. Um, and just the fact that this bill, you know, it is, it is quite nasty. But as you say, John, they all, um, they did, they did all fall into line and, and vote for it. So, um, the question for them will be if it toughens up further, does that mean that Rishi Sunak loses support from them or will they just kind of, you know, in the end, just hold their noses and vote for it anyway? They haven't come across as particularly strong, it has to be said. I just add one thing in there, which is that, yeah, you're right, John, that obviously, um, you know, we're living through a cost of living crisis. There are lots of other concerns on voters' minds, but small boats is a genuine issue. And MPs from both parties tell me they get a lot of correspondence on small boat arrivals. Um, And I think unless you have some kind of answer for how to deal with that, 
you know, voters are not really going to trust. Yeah, but that, I mean, that gets us back in how accident prone Rishi Sunak turned out to be. Because my impression really is that even the kinds of voters who are worked up about this issue will now see the Rwanda plan as just as just a farce, right? Mm. That it's not mm. it's not worked. So in an in an attempt to to come up with something that plays well with their voters, their problems with those voters have deepened even more. The really ridiculous thing about this is Rishi Sunak has done one thing which has really worked in terms of getting small numbers back, and that's signing a returns agreement with Albania. That's cut numbers massively. And so, you know, the answer is clearly more of that kind of thing. And if he'd have spent the last few months talking about how much success he's had with that, then maybe he'd be in a better position than he is now, having tried to kind of come up with one gimmicky policy to solve the entire problem. Very, very quickly in terms of what happens next, um, is there any chance of this getting past the House of Lords, as far as either of you understand it? I think it's going to be quite difficult. Um, you know, it wasn't a manifesto commitment, so the House of Lords doesn't have to uh, pass it in its existing form. It does have powers uh, to um, amend it, to delay it. And, you know, a general election is only a year away, so it's difficult to see it getting through the Lords in the form that Sunat wants it to. Now, the Labour Party and Keir Starmer's line against um, the Rwanda plan is not a question of morals or ethics or any of that, by and large. They, they've said that it doesn't work and it really amounts to a gimmick. You hear that word all the time over the last three days, that's what I've heard constantly from the Labour Party. Kieran, do you think the Labour Party are worried in any sense about this bill getting through, making it onto the statute book and therefore giving Sunak something to hit the Labour Party with? They are definitely worried about that. I was talking to a shadow cabinet minister yesterday who said their big concern is that the bill gets passed and one plane takes off before the election. And suddenly the question becomes not about Rishi Sunak and the Conservative Party. It's about what does Labour do with this scheme that is now up and running? That's what they're really nervous about. Okay. There is a perspective on this, a very obvious, clear, vivid perspective, which it seems to me is lacking from the conversation about the Rwanda plan. We are talking here about real people and their lives. When he was on Question Time last week, my Guardian colleague George Monbiot said this was all about the government performatively beating up some of the most vulnerable people on earth, right? There was that ethical voice. You don't hear that very often, though, do you? That's that's largely absent. Even when broadcasters ask ministers about the plan, they tend to go on the idea that it's not going to work and it's a gimmick and it's going to come to nothing. I think that's some of the risks of getting into a very technical debate about the law around this, around the constitutional standing of the plan, which is that you sort of end up losing the big picture. And the truth is that it's not a new thing that politicians use asylum seekers as a bit of a, you know, a scapegoat yeah, in, in politics. It, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, there's a very long trend of that. But I would say it's got worse and worse over time. And I do think that in some of the debates around this, we've lost sight of the big moral issues at stake. For example, the fact that there's always been movements around the world driven by conflict and poverty. And there's not that much you can do to stop them. The evidence shows uh, Albania returns deal aside. The fact that, you know, Britain does have international obligations and if no country around the world is prepared to take refugees, I mean, where does that leave us? The fact that most refugees in the world are actually living in low and mid-income countries. You know, they don't come anywhere near Europe. But in the UK, this idea that there is a moral question at the heart of this is becoming clearer and clearer. I mean, let's not forget this week it's been reported that there's been a death on the Bibby Stockholm barge in Dorset, which looks like it was a suicide, right? So there we are. That's what we're actually talking about. Yeah, that happened yesterday, just hours before the vote. And it was quite a stark reminder of what we're actually talking about here. 
you know, it's difficult. It's difficult for politicians sometimes to keep that in mind as you get caught up in the drama of Westminster. It's really difficult for reporters to report on as well. I mean, particularly political correspondents like me, we like talking about what works, what doesn't, where the factions are. We, it's very difficult to to talk about things like morality and ethics. You know, it's very easy to lose sight of that that bigger picture. But you're right. And part of the reason for that, John, is that Labour's not talking about it. Yeah, so you yeah, don't yeah. have an amplifying voice you know, talking about exactly those issues. Right, let's pause here for a minute. When we come back, we'll look at where this vote and Rishi Sunak's current leadership leave the modern Conservative Party. Welcome back. We are still talking about the government's Rwanda plan um, now in the context of the politics of the Conservative Party and how it's going to conduct itself in the build-up to the next election, which is obviously at some point going to arrive next year. Kieran, you said a moment ago that the reason that the government has decided to do this, for for all the fact that it's landed Rishi Sunak in, in a hole, is that it thinks it gives it an electoral advantage. Can we just explain that a little bit? Because as I said, I think I think one of the one of the key things that's gone horribly wrong for the government is the fact that the very voters they're wanting to uh, get the support of on the back of this policy will look at these farcical goings on and 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 their feelings about the government will get even worse really. Yeah, I think the image that the government really wants and we know Suella Brahman was desperate for was one plane taking off with at least one asylum seeker on it on its way to Rwanda. And actually, if you look at the details of the bill and what Rishi Sunak has said in the past, it becomes very clear what his plan is. Because what he said is he will allow ministers to override a temporary injunction from Strasbourg. But actually, if Strasbourg then turns around and says this whole scheme is illegal, then uh, they are willing to bring people back. So his gamble must be that they want at least one plane to take off deliver people there. And then if Strasbourg turns around and says this scheme is illegal, his gamble is it's somebody else's problem after the election to decide what to do and whether to bring those people back. So uh, all they want really is is for that image to play out on the news and then for everybody to say to Labour, right, what are you going to do now? Along the way, Sonia, it seems to me that this sort of endlessly nasty face that the Conservative Party now presents to the electorate it may or may not play well with the sort of voters that I just talked about with Kieran, but it also risks losing a lot of people. There is a great swathe of the southeast of England, which largely voted for Remain. I'm talking about sort of commuter towns, the home counties and so on. And it's a lot more liberal in its instincts increasingly than this sort of policy would suggest. And I think it doesn't like it. And the return to the conservative foreground of faces like Marc Francois, right, and the fact that Suella Braverman is constantly on manoeuvres will make a lot of people in places like Guildford and Hemel Hempstead and St Albans and places where the Tories are already in a political spot. If you look at um, local council election results, for example, some by-elections as well point this up. It's going to deepen their problems. I feel that really keenly. I had a very vivid experience um, the day after Robert Jenrick resigned, I was on a, happened to be on a heavily delayed commuter train out of Waterloo with these very sort of put-upon commuters, a lot of whom looked like they might be Conservative voters. And I thought, God, the party that a lot of you probably used to vote for is just away with the fairies. And it's not talking to you about the dire state of your trains or the state of the NHS. And that must just compound their sense of distance from the Conservative Party. There's big risks here, aren't there? 
Absolutely. And I think I totally agree with you. That's one really big risk. And if you look at the polling of the public in general on this policy, it's not popular. The second risk, I think, for the Tories electorally is that there are, you know, a smaller number of voters that genuinely really care about it, as you just alluded to. But actually, they think that the government isn't capable of doing this and they get driven into the arms of either a party like reform or they just stay at home and they don't come out and vote. So I think there are actually risks on all sides for this, for the Conservatives. I think the word that Kieran used, gamble, is really right. They're they're feeling quite desperate, people in number 10 at the moment, when you look at the polls. And, you know, they they feel like they have to try and get the election away from the cost of living because it's going to be very, very difficult for them to win on that and the NHS. Hold on, just pause there for a minute. How on earth are you meant to get voters' attentions away, (laughs) right, from the day-to-day experience of being alive. I mean, how well, on earth is right? that going to work? I mean, it is de- that's why I'm saying it's desperate, but they know they've got to have something else. They've got to turn up the heat on Labour on something else. And this is what they're trying to do. And you can see that this is a strategy. It's just very, very difficult to see how it works out for them. And again, I think there's a danger that when you compare Starmer and Sunak, you know, they're hoping that this policy, and if they get one plane off with one asylum seeker or one plane with a few asylum seekers, people will look at Sunak again and go, hmm, now maybe this is a guy who can deliver for us. I just think that the way public perceptions have developed around Starmer and Sunak, it's going to be very difficult to kind of unseat that and change public perceptions around that. Generally, the public look at Keir Starmer and think that he is somebody that they've got more faith in him as as somebody who can deliver for the country, even when it comes to an issue that the uh, Labour Party's been historically weak on, like immigration. I mean, if heaven forfend, Kieran, that that plane, the fabled plane from Suella Braverman's dream, does take off with a few very vulnerable put-upon people on it, the Labour Party will just say, well, that flight so far has cost about 300 million quid. You know, and you could build 10 hospitals with that money. It's not difficult. Yeah, obviously they'll be right. But then there's a question, well, what are you going to do? And especially if the Strasbourg court says that this scheme is illegal, then the question becomes for Labour, are you going to bring them back? So you you think, think despite all the outward sense of chaos and political mishap, that there still might be something in this for the Conservatives? Yeah, and I'm not the only one. Labour thinks that as well. This is not... This is Labour are not out of the woods. I mean, they have a they have a strategy. Keir Starmer was really interesting on this the other day when he went to the Today program and they asked him what his strategy and policy was on um, stopping small boats, and he said it was rather mundane. It was kind of made up of small small things like returns agreements, and and that probably technically is the right way to go. But Labour are very nervous that the big eye catching policy will suddenly turn all attention on them, and they know that in a, an election fought on immigration rather than one on the economy and public services is not is one that they will find harder to win. I think that's true, but I, I think it's very hard to see how one policy like this could end up dominating over cost of living in the NHS if Labour play it right. The Tories, as we know, are nervous about Nigel Farage and Reform UK. He's just been through another electoral contest that he didn't win in Australia on ITV, but um, he definitely wants to create the impression that he's he's back, 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 and he's set on causing the Tories trouble. There is a lot of debate at the moment about exactly how much of a threat Reform UK are to the Conservative Party, but that's the one factor in all this we haven't mentioned, Kieran. That's, that's there, isn't it, in the foreground of Tory minds? Yeah, it is, and that's the real, if anything, that is almost the bigger risk of dialing up the heat under this <coughs> issue is that you just by boosting its salience you actually boost reform uk and yeah, they found a that great big platform for pharaohs right yeah and they found that for years when they kept talking about immigration and europe and then suddenly you know UKIP 
was gaining in the polls and, and then suddenly we're out of Europe. Um, so yes, that, that is a big risk. I think the calculation will be that people tend not to vote for those smaller parties at a general election, especially if it looks like it'll be close. Those smaller parties obviously do often do very well in by-elections or local elections. But yeah, I mean, they're 9% at the moment, Reform UK and, and Farage. In some polls, there is some debate about whether or not poll yeah, ratings of that, of that size are actually accurate. But the point is that there are voices across the right-wing press and so on that want to believe that Reform UK is a big threat to the Tories and that Farage is a big political player and they almost sort of will it to be true and that's enough then to really scare the Conservative Party. That's the point, isn't it? Even if it's yeah, a fantasm, they, they don't, it's scary. They don't have to do much to pose a threat. They just have to take a few thousand votes in the right places. Exactly. And, you know, they'll hand they'll, they'll, there's a few seats that they could end up handing to Labour. Right, to close, let's add a bit more pain to Rishi Sunak's miserable week. On Monday, he appeared before the COVID inquiry how much we actually learned, how much we're learning from this inquiry is debatable. But much like Boris Johnson last week, he began by apologising. I just wanted to start by saying how deeply sorry I am to all of those who lost loved ones, family members through the pandemic, and also all those who suffered in the various different ways throughout the pandemic and as a result of the actions were taken. I've thought a lot about this over the past couple of years, it's important that we learn the lessons so that we can be better prepared in the future. And it's in that spirit and with enormous respect for all of those who are affected that I'm here today. And I look forward to giving evidence in a spirit of constructive candour. Uh, it was another rather sort of unconvincing, what exactly are you apologising for apology? I mean, I'm not any great surprise really, but I thought he came across as being very, very bloodless. A lot of politicians look bloodless, particularly in situations like that. But also, we were back to something which has become increasingly familiar with Rishi Sunak, which is the fact that he sounded a bit tetchy. He seems to have the idea that we should all be more grateful for his efforts. That's becoming part of his personal brand, Sonia, isn't it? It's coming through. Yeah, it is. I think people are really noticing that more. He's not... Um, I mean, I think people thought he was calmer than expected, um, during this sort of uh, COVID inquiry session. Um, but it's definitely something that people are, are seeing about him. I think he's not that good at responding under sort of pressure or challenge. I think the other thing that really stuck out for me was just his significant memory lapses. So you can see how much... Let alone his lost phones. These politicians have had. <laughs> Kieran, he's having a torrid time of it, isn't he? This is, this is not the prime ministership that Rishi Sunak in his most optimistic mood was expecting or wanting. Yeah, no, I'm sure that's true. And I think, as I, as I was saying earlier, one of the things that has really struck home to me over the last year reporting and covering him quite closely is just how weak he is in the face of his own party. And I think he really feels that. And that's partly, I think, the reason for his tetchiness. He's quite good at coming up with detailed focused solutions to knotty problems and you saw that for instance with his uh, winter framework and, and a solution to a problem that had been dogging the, the party and the government for years um, what he's not so good at is dealing with all these competing uh, factions within, within his own party some of whom occasionally seem less than rational he's not very good when dealing with people uh, who are being driven more by emotion than rationality and that's I think where he often gets quite tetchy. And the point, just to finish, is that he's not going to get the build-up to the election that he wants, is he? We're going to, we're going to carry on 
getting lost or the Tory party is going to carry on getting lost in its own internal tensions between now and the spring. That's what it feels like. Look, let me just give you the counter argument to that. Inflation is coming down. We've just had poor monthly growth figures, but at some point that will probably start to pick up. He'll maybe have another round of tax cuts in the March budget. He might have got his uh, Rwanda policy through. There might be a plane taking off. There is a world in which this becomes a much closer election than we're expecting right now. Okay. Well, I'll have, I'll, I'll have booked a seat on a plane somewhere if that happens, I dare say. <laughs> mm. I, th- I think while that's true, the economy could start turning around. I think the extent to which that would have to happen to make voters feel good about what's happened to their budgets over the last 10 years is going to have to be really, really significant. I think sometimes that's what we forget when we talk about falling inflation, for example. It still means that prices are going up on top of price rises that have already happened. Yeah, although I I tend to sort of lean Kieran's way when we have these conversations, which is that it's the Conservative Party and you should never rule it out. And on that moment of tension, we will draw things to a close. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As I always say, if you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcast. This year, for the Guardian and Observer's annual charity appeal, we are asking for your support to help refugees and asylum seekers rebuild their lives in safety. We're definitely on the right side of the argument. We're partnering with the Refugee Council, Refugees at Home and NACOM to provide asylum seekers and refugees with practical support, vital accommodation and a safety net against homelessness and destitution. If you can, please donate now at theguardian.com forward slash donate. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier and the executive producers are Maz Ebtaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 